This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, producing Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, right in the heart of Times Square, right on 42nd Street where the heart of the theatre really is. These seminars are but one of the Wing's ongoing programs. The American Theatre Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, but the Wing is more than that. It's much more than that. It is a program that started long, long ago and today continues from our legendary stage door canteen. Currently, we have a hospital show program bringing live professional theater into institutions and hospitals. Our Saturday Theater for Children is a wonderful program in which, again, professional theater is brought into schools, brought into their own neighborhoods, and children line up, they make a commitment, they buy a ticket and they're going to see a show. And that is the kind of habit of theater going that we think will provide the audiences for the future. It'll be a reason to go to the theater because they need to, not because the theater is a hard ticket or it got a rave review, but a need to go and have the magic of theater brought to them. These seminars, which you see, are based on giving an insight into what makes working in the theater. We have brought the performance, those people that are magical and alive and bring the words that the playwright and director give to them. And today's performance is that on the producers, the final say in what brings the theater to the audience. They are the people who take the risks and have the commitment and have the loyalty to the theater. And without these producers, there would be no theater. And so quickly, I want to introduce to you our co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple and Skylar Chapin, and they will introduce to you the production team of Sweet Sue, currently on Broadway, and a wonderful production too. Jean Dalrymple, would you please take over right now? I believe that I was supposed to come second, and I think the cameras are here <laughs> plan the Well, then I'll say Skyler Chapin, and I will give you your full credit. Skyler, he is, right. uh, Skyler Chapin is Columbia University Professor of the Arts at Columbia University and is on our the American Theatre Wing's Tony Nominating Committee. Skyler, would you Isabel, it would be a pleasure. Um, the first gentleman on my far right um, is one of those people who does the work that keeps 
shows going. And you never find him really on the front page of credits. It's always you have to look carefully in the program to find out who is the gentleman who is billed as the general manager, the fellow who really keeps it working. This particular gentleman has not only obviously been doing it for Sweet Sue, but at the same time he's doing it for Blythe Spirit. And last year did it for Aren't We All and Strange Interlude. Will you please welcome Larry Goosen. And right next to me here is a gentleman who, despite his youthful looks, has been involved in the theater for over 31 years. He is, of course, one of the co-producers of Sweet Sue, but equally important is the work that he has done uh, aside from that marvelous play. And it includes, most recently, the organizing of the BAM Gershwin Gala, which reintroduced the Gershwin musical to the New York public. He's also been an occasional actor. If you saw the two Mrs. Grenvilles, he was snuck in there between Claudette Colbert and Margaret, and Anne Margaret, and uh, especially well known for you, uh, producing your good man, Charlie Brown. Will you also please give a warm welcome to Arthur Whitelaw? And on my far left, is a lovely lady who is very, very important to any production. She is the casting director. The casting director suggests all of the players to the producer, the director, and the author. And she knows very well which ones will actually get the parts because she's very knowledgeable. And it's uh, Donna Isaacson, who is a partner in Lyons Isaacson. And next, next to her is someone who almost needs no introduction, a wonderful playwright, one of my favorites. I love everything he's ever written. And uh, he's the playwright of Sweet Sue, of course. And, but uh, I remember, and it's not written down here, that you did the Middle Ages. And that was one of my favorites. And also the perfect party in the dining room. And you're now teaching at Columbia. That's right. Yes. Wonderful. They, they are very <laughs> And right here is an old, old friend, Fred Golden. Fred Golden is also very important to a production because he's the advertising director. And Fred has done my advertising since I first started to produce, and he's the best. He's wonderful. And I, I can't begin to tell you all the plays that he's advertised. We'll come to that later, and because I have no material today, unlike uh, my partner here, who hurried around and got everything. <laughs> I, I wasn't able to. <laughs> we didn't think you needed it. <laughs> anyway, Fred Golden is, is a great advertising man. Please welcome him. Now comes the moment, of course, having assembled all the people to do with uh, with uh, Sweet Sue, uh, to find out a little bit of how this project got started and what brought you all together. And obviously, one should, I think, start with no. Mr. Gurney, who uh, conceived the uh, conceived the idea. Uh, well, uh, yes, I wrote okay. it. I started, and and then uh, we. I think the first, uh, I, I, I had a reading of it at the actor's studio. 
but the first significant display of it was up at Williamstown, the Williamstown Theater Festival, uh, last summer. And uh, at that time, uh, Mary Tyler Moore uh, was interested in, uh, she had just been in a movie and she wasn't pleased with the results of that and she hadn't been terribly pleased with the results of her series, so she was interested in getting back on the stage. So the director of the Williamstown Theater Festival put her together with this strange script of mine that this arrived on his desk. She seemed interested. And so we uh, put it on for uh, two weeks up in Williamstown, which is a very nice and uh, very low-key summer theater situation. Well, Arthur Whitelaw happened to be in Williamstown one weekend and see it. And I suppose I should now toss the ball to you. <laughs> well, I saw it. I had no idea what I was going to see that afternoon. I wandered into the Williamstown Theater, uh, where I've been many times before, and I saw this play unfold, and I fell in love with it. And uh, I went with a friend of mine, Jack Venza, who is uh, the executive producer of Great Performances on WNET. Uh, and we went out for a drink afterwards. We went back to see the cast because I knew some of the people. In walked Pete Gurney and his wife Molly and their daughter, and they sat down and had a drink with us. And uh, I found out that there was nobody producing the play at that point, so I became very interested and was going to see a play of Pete's called The Perfect Party uh, the following Wednesday with an old friend of mine, Dick Button. Uh, and it was at the perfect party that Dick and I decided to produce Sweet Sue. Uh, it didn't take much persuading uh, for Dick or for myself to be interested in this play because it was such a lovely play. And I must say, in all the years that I've been involved in the theater, and I'll say this publicly now, this has been the nicest experience that I've ever had. Uh, it's rare, and it was textbook style. Uh, <laughs> it's rare that you get a playwright like Mr. Gurney that you get a director like John Tillinger, that you get two stars like Lynn Redgrave and Mary Tyler Moore, and uh, Barry Tubb and John Linton, and a wonderful stage crew, and Larry Guzan, who's been working with me since he was 19 years old, um, and Fred Golden, who has done every one of my plays since 1963. It's very rare that you get this kind of cooperation and this camaraderie, um, and then have a success on top of everything else. It's, it's very nice. I'm very thankful for it. I'm glad I wanted in that, that day. <laughs> Why don't we ask Ms. Isaacson when she came along? Well, we came along sort of at the end. It oh, was really? all put together. Oh. Um, this was uh, a little different than some of our other jobs because the star was already set, and, um, or at least half, half of the star was already set. <laughs> and I had worked for John Tillinger several times. I had cast Lute for him and it's only a play. And so we got a call from Larry and Arthur asking whether or not we'd like to do it and we wanted to. Yes. So we put all the pieces together with Arthur and Larry and Pete and Joey. How but long that's a much longer process. How long did it take from your wandering into Williamstown and, and Dick Button and, and Larry to get the two stars and then from then on? Well, Mary decided to do the play almost immediately. Mm -hmm. um, when she was told there was going to be a New York, New York production of it, it was, what, a matter of a few weeks, I think, yeah. that she made the decision. Yeah. And it was, I guess, based on Mary's name, 
we everything sort of fell into place. Mm -hmm. uh, Larry had worked with Lynn in uh, Aren't We All last year, mm -hmm. and Lynn was interested in doing another play on Broadway, but she'd been offered so many revivals she'd never you know had a part that she'd originated uh, un un since uh, I guess My Fat Friend, uh, and she wanted to do a new play, mm -hmm. so we sent her sent her the play, and that night she read it, and the next morning called uh, and said she was coming to New York and she met with us the next day and decided that she'd do the play. So everything, it was one of those blessed events. Everything yes. just fell really in place. We got the theater we wanted. The money was no, no problem to raise. We raised the money, I think, in two weeks with 28 investors. How did you do that? The old-fashioned way. <laughs> On earnings. <laughs> Well, I have a group of people that have been investing with me for years, and uh, Dick had, had some people that uh, had invested in a play that he did some years before. Then there were two lovely people who uh, I love dearly, uh, the Langworthys, David and Norma Langworthy, who had been co-producers of The Perfect Party. And when we approached them, they absolutely wanted to, to come into this, and um, so they did. And then Byron Goldman, whom I produced Butterflies Are Free with, and, and Minnie's Boys, read the play and loved it, and he decided he wanted to be involved with it as well. So we put this team together, um, and it was just magic. It just absolutely magic. It sounds most unusual for production. Yes. Then Larry, Larry, that quickly. Larry was able to book uh, an out-of-town uh, theater because uh, Pete and Joey wanted to go someplace first mm -hmm. to try out the play and get reviews because it was not reviewed in Williamstown. It wasn't allowed to be reviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were able to go to Boston to the Wilbur Theater, which is one of the prettiest theaters in America. And uh, we played there for, what, three weeks? Did, was it, Larry? Three and a half, three and a half weeks. <laughs> uh, so we all had Thanksgiving. We've, we've gone through all the holidays with this play. We had Thanksgiving mm -hmm. in Boston, we had Christmas in New York, and we just had Easter in New York. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good ride. Yeah. It's very nice. But How did you choose the theater, Larry? Is that your job? Well, no, it's not actually my job, but Arthur and I looked around and surveyed what was available, and the music box was available, and Arthur said, I've always wanted to do a play in that theater. That's my favorite theater. And uh, we went and uh, saw the gentleman about it, and they were very keen to have the play, and it was indeed available, and it didn't look like there was going to be anything that would interfere with our booking it uh, a couple of months hence. And so we, we got it, and we were very happy mm -hmm. to get it. And the, the, uh, the play looked lovely in the music box. And now we've moved across the street, and we are at the Royale. What was the reason for that? Well, uh, another booking came along for the music box, and mm -hmm. we got pushed out. And the Schubert's very kindly offered us the Royale, which is directly across the street from the music box. And so we just picked up our scenery and moved. <laughs> it cost us two thousand dollars a foot. Just it cost a fortune. <laughs> Couldn't you carry any of the things across the street? <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> That's really That's a good producer. Yeah. That's right. When you spoke about about casting and and coming into it to complete the casting. Uh, I think it would be very interesting if you could speak a little bit about that process. Our big search really were for the kids in this particular play. Um, and there were unique 
problems and unique things that attracted actors to this. First of all, a young man had to appear without his clothing on. So you have to eliminate X, Y, and Z because they don't want to do that. They had to have great sense of intelligence, um, be of a certain region to the play, um, be of a specific age, and um, there were very definite qualities that we were looking for, which was somewhat against what everything else seems to be. Lately, you're, you're always looking for a sort of young, street, sexy guys. Here we were looking for Dartmouth graduates, preppy, um, 21. We really had to keep it to, to that age. Um, and two of them. Two of them. So we started the process, and the list was very long, and then it got shorter and shorter, because for some reason, people <coughs> came in and just weren't able to handle the material. I mean, you look at it and you think, oh gosh, it's Pete Gurney, you know, there's got to be a hundred, you always hear, there's got to be a hundred people <coughs> out there who can do this role. And somehow the humor missed. It's, it's a light piece. It's like a souffle, you know, and it's either going to rise or it's going to sink. And Barry Tubb, who had done it in Williamstown, and I had gone up and seen it, I thought I had done a remarkable job. And it was someone who really didn't have a lot of stage experience and had only two weeks rehearsal. So he was really growing with the piece. And just as he was getting to that point, the show was over because it runs for such a short period of time. And he wasn't available to us during this process, so we couldn't even sort of play around in combinations, which very often we will do. But he kept sticking in the back of all of our minds because he brought so much to it. So we tried to think, well, if it's Barry and if it's Mary and if it's going to be Lynn, then who's that fourth piece? And we saw about 200 young men, narrowed it down to about five or six, went into the music box theater. Lynn, uh, Lynn was not able to be there at that time, but Mary came in and watched and read and worked with these kids. And John Linton just brought something to it that nobody else was able to bring. He needed to have a certain danger. He needed to have a sexuality to him. Uh, Mary and Lynn give up an awful lot, so it has to be a very special young man who's going to sit in that seat and change this woman's life. It wasn't, it couldn't just have been a stud. It had to have been someone who was going to show her something she had missed and needed to have. I don't know if that answers your question. It certainly does, and it's an, an extraordinary lucid explanation of right. it. Yeah, a very difficult job. A very difficult job. And I think it's something that, 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 that you know, actors should somehow tuck into the back of their own minds, that the, the process, when you're specific, as you always are, looking for a specific type of person, when somebody is said, I'm sorry, this is not for you, or to realize that it is, a, it is a matter of decision, not a matter of emotional rejection, which is, of course, up in here over and over again. We try to explain that to actors, yeah. that don't ever look, when you come in and you audition and you leave, mm -hmm. there's always that moment where you want to know what happened in the room. You cannot know. You will never know. Even if you get an answer, you will not necessarily be getting the whole, the whole mm -hmm. truth or the whole answer. It, because there's so many things that come into play, and certainly by the time you've come in the third time on a part, you're never going to be rejected 
because of your talent. By the time you've made a second or third callback, you're good. Now it's really about size and shape and quality and tone. And in this case, it was really about size and shape and quality and tone. Yeah. Oh, there were a lot of guys working out in the gym before their last call. Why aren't they told, though? Why isn't an actor told? I think it's, it's, it's very important to, because to say what are, you just said. There are four of us here and mm -hmm. several pieces of this show that are missing. The director, another casting director, a co-producer. Everybody's got a different opinion. It's a very subjective, very personal. It's not scientific. <laughs> and the show, who had the final say? It's, it's really it's a It's really interesting. It is a collaboration, but when you find an actor for a part, <laughs> and the actor is the right actor, invariably everybody agrees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. when John Linton walked in and read for us, the first time, I remember we were all sitting in the Music Box Theater, Mary sitting by our side, watching these boys read, and John walked in, we'd never seen him before. He read the scene beautifully, left the stage, and we all turned and said, that's the boy. Mm -hmm. There was not a question mm -hmm. in our minds. Yes. So you do know, and I don't know, Isabel, what that magic is that'll no, make an actor sure. oh, appeal to you that. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, when we did Charlie Brown, or better yet, when we did Butterflies Are Free, I remember we were auditioning people at my office, uh, which was then over on 44th Street, and we had a, a center room, which was our casting room. And Milton Katselis, who directed the play, and Leonard Gersher wrote the play, and I were sitting in there watching these girls parade in for us. And I excused myself for a minute, and I walked into my office, and it was sort of a uh, old sunset. That was the hour, around 4 or 5 o'clock in November. And there was this vision, this beautiful lady girl standing at my desk and in a very husky voice she said may I use the phone I said you can do whatever you want to do <laughs> and I got something out of my desk and I left and I walked back inside and I said to Milton and to Lenny I said I don't know who the girl in my office is but if she is not an actress she should be and I said if she is an actress she's going to be in Butterflies Are Free. It was Blythe Danner. Oh. I said, I'm not going to do the play unless she's in it. All she said was, can I use the telephone? <laughs> there it was. But I knew. You just know. You yes, just know. you do know. And of course, yes. she wound up in Butterflies and won a Tony for it. Right. <laughs> could I ask Fred when he came into the picture? The advertising? Well, I came in uh, shortly after it was decided to do the play. I called Arthur. And he agreed that uh, I'd be working on it. I was very grateful. But before I go into anything else, I, I'd, I'd like to also uh, make a statement, as, as Larry did and Arthur did. I've uh, it's been a lot of years for me, Gene, as you know, and uh, I can't recall when I've enjoyed working on a play as professionally handled as I have with Larry and Arthur and Dick and Byron. And if I've left someone else, you'll have to forgive me. But that's, it was one of those mm. great things, and everything worked well. We never made a decision unless all of us were sitting around a table. I never got a call that said, Freddie, how come we're not on the buses? How come we're not on TV? We never talked that way. We said, let's talk about it. Larry would pick up the phone and call the box office and let's say, how are the sales going? What's the weather going to be tomorrow? When are the Jewish holidays? When is Easter Sunday? Nothing was spent unless it was agreed upon, unless it was thoroughly researched and marketed. And, uh, I think over the long run we, we saved some money because everyone agreed. If they didn't agree, we argued. <laughs> but it all came out and nothing was done 
unless it was agreed by your location. What kind of a marketing program did you do? Well, in the beginning, uh, Arthur thought, and wisely so, that uh, with Mary mm -hmm. and Lynn, that we shouldn't have their photographs, only because, for all kinds of reasons, we thought we might like to have a good illustrator uh, do a drawing of the two girls, with some likeness. And we, we, I mentioned Clyde Smith, and right from the go, Arthur said, that's just a man I want to use. And we had Clyde, and we did uh, some drawings, and you may have seen the ads with the, with the, yeah. with the boy with his back to us. Lovely. And we had a naked boy on stage with his back to us, and we, we had certain problems as far as acceptance by the, by the media, but uh, we got by that. And uh, everything was going along fine, and then we all agreed that maybe we should do something about TV. Let's not buy any time, but let's be prepared. Should we have to go on TV for whatever reason we thought, we wouldn't have to take two or three weeks before we're on the air. And Mary and Lynn, who were just as professional, just as wonderful as everyone else I talked about, they were at the studio at 7 o'clock making up, and they sat around all day under those hot lights, and we did, I don't know, eight or ten spots, and we used five or six or seven. And we decided to go to ten second spots rather than thirties. Not so much because they were less expensive, but we had two stars who were familiar to the people who watched the two. All we wanted to make is an awareness that these two wonderful stars were on stage at the music box or at the Wilbur Theatre in Boston. And we did these spots. Mm. And uh, they weren't great masterpieces, but they were just enough to say, I'm Lynn Gregg, uh, Lynn and Mary Tyler Moore, and we're going to be in Sweet Sue. And then we went to Boston. And we, and we bought some TV time. Not much, but we were very careful. And in marketing, when you have two stars like, like those two wonderful gals, you can pick your spots. In print, when you buy an ad in a newspaper, you're buying a lot of readers you may not ever want to reach. But uh, with the advent now of spending money on TV and radio, you can pick your spots very, very carefully. And we would research, and we would call the program directors at the station and find out uh, when would uh, we have some, some of the reruns of Mary Tyler's uh, old shows. And Lynn was all over the tube with her Weight Watcher spot. Mm -hmm. So we were able to pick the spots, and we didn't go into the, uh, the late news and the early news that cost a lot of money. We wanted to reach the people who watched the soap during uh, uh, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And we did. And Boston came, and it opened, and the notices were mixed or so. But I think, Larry, you can back this up. I think the day after the notices came out, uh, on the day the notices came out, we had one of our biggest box office sales ever. <laughs> ever. That's very interesting. And here in New York as well. That's right. Mm -hmm. Same thing happened in New York. And uh, at the, that night, when we got all the notices, at 2 or 3 in the morning, we were sitting at, the, I guess it was the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, with Byron. Byron Goldman and Larry and Arthur and Dick and myself and Don Josephson and John Beerman, my two associates. And we decided we were going to change the ads. Now let's show our face, the faces of our girls. We had faces that were worth millions of dollars and we weren't concerned about what was going to happen six months from now. We were concerned what was going to happen right away quick. And at three in the morning we went back to the, the agency and worked up some ads and we were in the newspapers, I think the very next day, with photographs of the ads. Larry was around, Arthur was around, Brian. We all did it by committee. Everyone was there. We looked at the ads, and within 
24 hours, we changed the whole concept of our campaign. We went to photographs, and things worked. The fact is, we got out of Boston, which shows hardly ever do today, making money. Yes, we did. When, when the notices were mixed in Boston, were you asked to do any rewriting? Did you want to do any rewriting? Yeah, that's an interesting story, too, because um, up at Williamstown, as, as we told you, we didn't have any reviewers. There were a lot of reviewers up there, not, not the Times, but the Pittsfield paper and the Springfield paper, and they all wanted and were in the habit of reviewing anything. So we had a kind of press conference, and I asked them, please, Williamstown hasn't had many new plays, so I asked them, please, just to, if they would, leave us alone, because even a, uh, and variety, too. I said, just, you don't review a baby when it's just learning how to walk. I mean, you just, I just said, please leave us alone. You can, we'll give you interviews, but just don't write us up, because we're not ready. So we didn't really know where we were as far as the critics were concerned when we came into Boston. We knew that audience has liked us very much, both in Williamstown and in Boston. And yet, when the reviews came out in Boston, it was really quite shocking, at least to me, and I suspect to other people, because they weren't all that good. And, I, and the audience had been, in both places had been so enthusiastic. I was really kind of amazed. I mean, I just didn't expect it. It was like driving a car into a stone wall. Uh, now, here was, again, uh, another example, I, I think, of, of the supportive aspect of good producing rather than, I mean, I can conceive of a situation, and you certainly see plenty of movies about where the producers start yelling at you and you're up all night pounding a typewriter at the wrists and trying to get things right. Uh, well, the first response on the part of Arthur and Byron and Dick was just, well, let's just, um, we're still good. I mean, look, listen to that audience. And then um, after the dust settled a little, I said, well, now, I don't, I don't like to read the reviews that much, but if you could possibly summarize them for me, and if there's any pattern, uh, anything that seems to be pervading all the reviews, I'd like to hear about it. Maybe we can address ourselves to it. So they did that for me. Larry was there, and with, without any kind of nervousness or indignation or you got to do this by such and such a date or we're in terrible <laughs> trouble. They just said, you, you might think about this, you might think about that. And uh, I did. And we slowly kind of took the ship and added a, righted the ship a little, added a little here, took out a little there. This, all the actors were very helpful. We had enough time to rehearse. And so by the end of the run in Boston, we still had good audiences, so that by the end of the, and we, so we could try it out every day. But I never felt any pressure that I had to have a joke here, I had to cut a scene there. It was all very supportive and collaborative. Uh, then when we came into New York, we had some more previews. We did a, some adjusting there. But again, the, the reviews were mixed in certain cases. But by then, uh, we felt, I think all of us, we had done what we could, and we liked what we did. And that uh, if not everybody liked us, we, 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 we seemed to have the sense that the audience did, and that enough critics liked mm -hmm. us, so that you could have a few quotes at least. Yes, quite right? a few. <laughs> and and uh, so that there wasn't ever this, and I, this sense of terror and panic, which I've, I hear can arise in the mm. theater. And I've talked to other players where it does, where, where it's in not Boston, helpful. In, in Boston, or New Haven, or yeah. Philadelphia, wherever it used to be. I never had that sense. I felt, I felt I wasn't 
being patronized or coddled either. I felt that there was simply a kind of good friends were sitting down and trying to respond to what they felt, what we all felt, uh, might be a valid criticisms. Mm -hmm. It's, well, it's the most unusual. The, well, they're, they're but the reason for it, if I may say, is because you were working with great pros. That's and right. one doesn't have that opportunity well, very often today. But also, <coughs> as a producer, there are not many producers that get a chance to work with a writer like Mr. That's Gurney. true, yes. And uh, the mutual respect that we have for one another is because of what we do mm -hmm. and the way we do it. And, and I think that, sure, the, I've worked with writers. I, had, I worked with a writer once. I had to throw him out of the theater. <laughs> I did. I locked him out of the theater. And the director and I rewrote the play. <laughs> uh, what we accomplished was Which? to get the audience to stop coughing because they started to cough the minute the curtain went up. <laughs> but he was a first-time writer, and he and he wouldn't rewrite. He absolutely wouldn't rewrite, and he was adamant about not rewriting. And the play wasn't right, and we all knew that. Uh, but then you then you get a writer like like Pete, who is so bright and and is so relaxed in the way he deals with you, that you have to show that respect back to him. And yeah. he's professional, totally. too, you see. Totally. It's uh, a question of everybody being completely professional and knowing exactly what he or she wanted to do well, and could a, do. Gene, it was having a mutual respect, which we all have for one mm -hmm. another. And we've all worked, yeah. except this is the first time I've ever worked with Pete and with Donna. And it was, as I said before, such an incredibly wonderful experience. You want to have this every time you do apply. Sure. But Larry and Byron and uh, um, Freddie and I have worked together for years, mm -hmm. and there well, becomes a shorthand between people. Yeah, sure. That's, 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 that's the reason. reason. I've been out of town after an opening in Boston or New Haven or Pittsburgh, and uh, things didn't go so well on stage. The fact is, they fell pretty much apart. And uh, I just sat and listened, and I'd, have to, I'd hear the producer tell the playwright, I think we've got to do some rewriting quite a bit, I imagine. And the playwright would come back and say, Mr. Jones, all we have to do is do a good TV commercial and everything will be all right. Now, <laughs> Freddie, now you got to do a TV commercial. Now, that, that has happened many sure. times, you see. Yeah. As a kid, I remember there was a musical on Broadway and I used to go to see everything and I, it was at the 46th Street Theater and I stood to see it at a matinee, Saturday matinee, and I assume the producer and the director or the writer and the director, whatever, were sitting in front of me in the last row of the theater. And this was a disaster. I mean, it was just an awful musical. <laughs> and I heard one of them turn to the other and say, I've got it. I know what's wrong with it. The shoes are the wrong color that she's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, boy, are they in trouble. <laughs> Let's go to the nitty gritty. Um, tell me, you had a cushion, obviously, when you came. You were, so you were secure in the sense of your money. You said you had it. Mm -hmm. um, how did you then scale your house? How did you decide on your ticket price? Who, who was the one that said you have a, a, that you're going to make tickets available to students? You're going to be able to have that very important part of it, opening the house to an audience. Well, we raised $800,000 to do the play. And because we made a profit in Boston, which is rare, um, with this play, we did not, it only cost us about $350,000, I believe, to bring the play to New York. So we had all that money left, um, which we still have left. 
Oh. Don't tell anybody. But we also we also came into New York at Christmas time, mm -hmm. right after Christmas, the twenty sixth of December was our first preview in New York, and that's the biggest week mm -hmm. in the year in terms of business. And the way the dates fell out this year, that sort of extended into the early part of January. So we did gangbusters business. Mm -hmm. uh, during but that wasn't meetings. by accident, was it? No, it wasn't no. by accident. We, we it was all planned. Yeah. <laughs> we, we made quite a bit of money in the early weeks in New York before the critics came anywhere near us. So uh, we were in good financial shape. How can you keep critics um, away? Yeah. How can you keep critics away? Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you, there's, there's, there's no agreement, as there is in England, as you well know, with the press corps that they have to review a play. Mm -hmm. There just isn't. It's just tradition that they do. Uh, I remember some years ago when I restored the Ritz Theater on 48th Street, uh, we did a play and it closed in one night. And I had this theater sitting, this beautiful theater sitting on my hands, and it was, we had nothing to book in it. And we booked a play called No Sex, Please, We're British, which is still playing in England. <laughs> and uh, I went to, to Washington to see it. I thought it was absolutely dreadful. But all, there were friends of mine involved with it, and the audience loved it. So they started previewing it in New York at my theater. And I begged the producer not to open it. I said, don't have the critics, because the critics are going to kill it. You're going to open it on a Tuesday night. It'll close on Saturday, because you'll get terrible notices. It's not a good play, but the audience adores it. And just keep it running. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to get the critics, so they invited the critics to come. They opened on Tuesday and they closed on Saturday. Exactly. Yeah. What's the reasoning behind them? Do you, do you know why did they insist upon having the critics run? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I would imagine prestige. Yeah. I don't know. Isabel, uh, by <laughs> the way, the I have to mention David Powell the press representative for the show. The best. I think I forgot about him. He is one of the greatest. Now I've got that often. No, but I think that's very important. I think he is. He's because just I, wonderful. I, I, I like somebody to take David's role there at this point and see what his position yeah. was. Oh, he, is, he was just, he is. And where did he come in? Show. Where did David? Well, right, right from well, the He came in fairly early on. And what the remarkable thing that he did was that he coordinated uh, the, the promotional or, or publicity aspects of the production. So they all kind of hit at one moment, which was right before we came into New York, the weekend before we opened for the press. Uh, we had been doing very well in previews, as I said before, but there was a blitz of, of publicity prior to the opening. Uh, the Hirschfeld in the New York Times, a huge article interview with... Uh, Lynn and with Mary. Uh, Mary was on the cover of the Daily News exactly. Sunday magazine David. section. That's, That's all agent. stuff that the press agent organizes and, and schedules to happen in a sequence so that you get the largest possible push prior to your opening. And I think he, he orchestrated it beautifully. What's remarkable about yeah, him, what's remarkable about David is that he does not take on a lot of projects all at once, which a lot of press agents do because they have to for financial reasons. He concentrates on one or two things. And he has orchestrated this, and I think that's the only word I can use to describe what he does. He's orchestrated this press campaign so that I mean, I've had a lot of hit plays and with a lot of publicity for, for them most of the time. But I've never had a play like this, which is a lovely, sweet, four-character, one-set comedy that has consistently sustained its publicity 
Um, we are on television, we are in the newspapers every single week and have been since we went into rehearsal. And it's all because of David. And he dreams up these things to do and he gets interviews, and not just for the obvious people in the play, Mary Tyler Moore and Lynn Redgrave, but for everybody concerned. Mm -hmm. So that the public is constantly aware that there's a play called Sweet Sue playing on Broadway. Uh, just a the little aside, when we asked David to come, he was very sweet and he said, I can write and I can do all these other things, but Isabel, I really can't talk. <laughs> He's very well, you know, shy. He's terribly shy. Uh, I'd have people stop me or at the office and say, Freddie, those ads are working just wonderfully well for Sweet Sue. And I'd smile and say, thank you very much. But in here, I knew it was David Powers making you look very, very good. He does. He did some wonderful things. And we would talk on the phone together again. I'd ask him when something was going to break in one of the magazines. So we could try to coordinate ads. And Where does press and, and advertising come in? How did you, in, in the budget, in the line of budget, where do you, how does it fit in? Well, It's I, confused in many people's minds. I guess Larry could, I could better thing. answer that. Well, the press, to, to the greatest extent, is, is the press agent's job. Is he is dealing more or less with, with um, elements that you do not pay for more than elements that you do pay for. Freddie's job is to buy time on television and to place the advertising, the print advertising with the newspapers, all of which represents a certain number of dollars in your advertising budget. A press agent really is looking for feature articles, interviews, uh, that sort of thing, which you don't pay for. I mean, there's certain expenses involved in doing it, but uh, you're basically talking about free space, uh, booking people onto interview programs on television, the Good Morning America show, yes, all that sort Barry of thing. Barry had an article in People Magazine. The People Magazine thing, which was a, which How was a is that? Very, very, to him it's very, very important, important yeah. and therefore to the show. Very, it, sure. uh, but that's something, the, the People Magazine article that, that uh, they did on Barry Tubb, which was out about two weeks two ago. Two weeks ago. That's been in the works for three or four months. Mm -hmm. And it was a long-range thing that David was trying to promote for the show. Uh, however, the press agent also does participate in all of the advertising meetings because his input and his eye on how you market the show overall is, is an important ingredient. He also, it's the first time I've ever worked with him, uh, and certainly it's not going to be the last. He, uh, he's a very gentle man, as you know, Isabel. And unlike a lot of press agents who have to ballyhoo things, I mean, he does things in such a gentlemanly mm -hmm. way. Uh, and it's fun to work with him. And we are on the phone every single day discussing all the aspects of the play. I mean, he came to Boston. His opinion was very needed and very valid about what the play needed, what he thought of the play. Uh, he was included in all of those meetings. It was very much... Uh, um, a communal effort on all of our parts. Again, the word respect comes up because we all respected one another's opinions. And we've all been around a long time. I mean, we've done a lot of plays. And if we haven't learned something by now, then we shouldn't be in this business, I guess. Well, I think you represent that wonderful continuity in the theater. Yeah. I think the important. other important thing to say about David uh, and his contribution was that when we started this project, uh, clearly we had two big stars. We have Mary Tyler Moore and we have Lynn Redgrave. And there's a certain uh, style uh, 
of working with stars that it's, it seems very important to have the right press agent, a kind of marriage between the personalities so that you get the most out of your stars in terms of what they are prepared to do, what they will do. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, for instance, won't do every sort of interview. Uh, Lynn is much more easily approached. Uh, and we felt that it was important to have a press agent who was sensitive to their needs mm -hmm. as actors. And uh, I think David accomplished that beautifully. Oh, absolutely. He's, I think he's, he's the best in the field for that. I've worked with David for many, many years. He's, he's, he's a gentleman. He's well-loved by the press, and he does a fine job. You know, Isabel, you were talking about by the critics, if I may uh, digress for just one minute. You know, for years, this has been the, uh, the cry of oil producers, bar him, kill him, shoot him, get him out of the theater. Uh, I was at a, at, a, at a meeting with most of the important producers in town, and they, all, they, they said, why do we have to quote the critics? Let's not quote them. We can't keep them from the theater, we, but we can, let's not quote them. And everyone agreed it was a good idea. And then Freddie Golden had a stick his nose in and almost got it knocked off. I pointed to one of the producers and I said, Mr. Jones, if you open the play tomorrow and the New York Times critic called it the best play in 20 years, would you not use that in every bit of advertising you have got? Well, that was the, that was the end of that. <laughs> there has to be, I would think, some way of, of uh, a united front or a united organization of producers that can overcome the bad reviews, to find a way of doing that with the critics and let the audience make the decision. We've talked about England and it, and it doesn't have to be the one theater, the, the one newspaper in I, England that can make or break a show. They, well, they have time because the critics come out all doing the week and possibly not for another week. With due respect to the critics, I think the only way to, to, to accomplish that uh, is to have enough money in reserve when you're producing a play to keep it running, to advertise it properly, not to stint so that the pub you can get to the public mm -hmm. uh, until the public finds the play. With Butterflies Are Free, we got the same kind of mixed reviews that we got for Sweet Sue. And there was no line the next day at the box office. And we finally closed after three years of running because we had enough in reserve to keep it going until we found our audience. And if you, in fact, do have a play that the audience likes, they are the final arbiter. They're the ones that are going to tell you whether or not it's a hit or a flop. Well, Arthur, with, with uh, Sweet Sue, for instance, we got some good and not so good. And we decided we'd just sit and wait just a little bit. We had two stars, and business in Boston proved that we could overcome. And when we thought the reviews had gone by the boards, and they had, we had enough good reviews then, and we hit it just as hard as we could. Reviews, uh, as they say in the advertising business, the Wednesday paper, we use it to wrap fish on Thursday. And people, and people forget about them, and, and we waited, because if one tries to rush in with a, with a quote ad, and I've read the notices, and I'm a theater goer, and I know what I read was not good, and I read a quote ad. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I believe that they're all been trumped up and fake. 
But if you, if you let it go by, and pretty soon you're going to pick up some good notices. The fringe papers come in, the magazines come in, and now you've got something honest to say, and you say it as hard and as well as you can, which is what we did, and, uh, and I, I think it works. Yes, but you, have, you had the money, and obviously <coughs> that's the way you should, a show well, should this, be produced, to have enough four money. characters, which is a lot less expensive to run than a musical. So it, everybody always talks about the critics and how can we change it and why does one particular person have the right to close down a, a $3 million investment. And I mean, I cast a show called Stepping Out that we worked so hard on. I mean, it was a cast of 13 and the show had great heart and it had mixed reviews, but reviews good enough that this show would have found an audience. But how do you carry in a small theater like the Golden, where you can't charge a lot because it's not a musical, and it only seats 960 people, and it's very hard to carry that cast, or it's very poor management. I don't know, because I never really get involved with the management of it. But I never understood why that show had to close, you know, other than for financial reasons. It would have found its place. Well, we had a straight play that just closed in two days last yeah. week. Mm -hmm. and. Um, <coughs> It's a question of economics, I'm sure. But that, and also, I think producers <coughs> sometimes lose heart. Uh, they don't really believe in what they're doing, or they don't have the experience to back up their beliefs uh, because they don't have any reference from past times. Um, and with this play, we just doggedly believed in it right from the first. All of us did, and we were right, obviously, because people do like it, and they have been coming. We also had a fairly healthy advance. We had a good advance. Which helps. Uh, yeah. that, that helps, you know, yes. restore your confidence with, yep. with mixed notices. I think, you know, very often you find yourself in, yeah. the, uh, in the position of opening a play to not sensational notices. And you may be sitting on half of your capitalization and not having spent it thinking, well, we've got the money to promote this play, but there's no interest in it because you can tell by looking at the advance sales that you haven't sold any tickets for the next four or five weeks oh, to any extent. Yeah. Yeah. And true. then you must make that very hard decision of if the reviews are not good enough, should we spend this remaining money that belongs to the investors and go for it, or should we give the money back to the investors and take the hint from the advanced sales? And cut your losses. I did, a play, losses. I did a play in London a few years ago that I, I co-wrote and I directed and I loved, uh, and I thought it was wonderful, and it got fairly good reviews also, but nobody came to see it. <laughs> and each day, the number of tickets that were sold were less than the day before. So, I mean, there was no reason in the world to keep that play running. As much as I loved it, I realized that I was sitting on an island by myself, that the audience didn't like it, and they weren't coming, and they weren't telling their friends. Unlike our play here, where they have been coming and they have been telling their friends and the advanced days the same or it bills in good months uh, that has to be word of mouth it has to be somebody saying that they saw it and they liked it larry's observation i think was was sort of typical of, of what's been going on the last six seven eight months with the show uh, the box office to me is the key of whether we should spend money or not a play has a certain charisma and people are coming to see it. When the grosses go up on Broadway, if our grosses go up in the same percentage, we've got a shot. If everybody goes up and we don't go up or we go down, we can be in trouble. 
And if they're not coming, and I'm in the advertising business for a long, long time, I don't know of any ads. There are exceptions, of course. I don't know whether you can make them force people to go to the theater. There has to be something about it. Now, the danger there is if they're not coming, and you think you have an audience show, and you spend a lot of money foolishly in advertising, trying to force them to come, and they don't come, now there's no place to go but close. But if you think you have a play that audiences will like, and that proved to us in Boston, we don't, we don't spend that much money. We, we do what we call a maintenance kind of schedule, saving any money to cover losses, operating losses. And then if the show works, if people come, it's, it's more important to keep the show alive and keep it running on Broadway than to spend money when people aren't watching the ads, aren't concerned about going. And you find that quickly enough, Isabel. You know right away whether they're coming or not. But this is all from experience, too. We did a play some years ago, Freddie and I, a musical on Broadway uh, that got rave reviews. I've never seen reviews so good. It's like your father and mother wrote all the notices. Uh, and we took a double truck ad out, which is a two-page, two-full-page ad. At, we were the first to do that, I think, in the New York Times. And those years, that was very expensive. I think we spent something like thirty-six or $38,000 for those two pages in those years. Um, and we ran, what, a half a season or something mm -hmm. with that play. Mm -hmm. The play's certainly seen a life of its own. It's been done all over the world since then. But the audience did not come. And I kept that show going, and we advertised. I think we must have spent a million dollars, close to a million dollars in advertising on that play. Um, and lost the money. We never got it back, and probably won't get it back. Uh, but that was because we just thought we had a play that should be seen, that, um, and we were wrong. So you have to learn from your mistakes. Which one was it? Strider. Oh, Strider. Yes. Yes. Which was a wonderful show. Mm. At some point, I'd like to know about the advance, how you got the advance. But right now, we're going to have to take a break for questions. And uh, this audience has got a lot of them for you, so don't go away. And just take a little rest, stand up, stretch, and come right back again. Thank you. If anyone has any questions, please come get a, a piece of paper. And a... We're back at the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theater Wing. We've been bringing you these seminars to give you an insight into what it is to work in the theater. We've heard from the performers, we've heard from the playwright and the director, and now this is a production. It's a production team of Sweet Sue, and it is a very interesting and exciting group of people that we've been hearing from, the people that make Sweet Sue possible. They're all talented, and they're all very, very responsible. They've all loved each other uh, while they've been talking to us, but now we're going to get into some nitty-gritty financial things, and we'll see if they continue to love us and each other with it. <laughs> Our co-moderators are Gene Dalrymple and Skylar Chapin. And will you continue with your questions? Certainly will. I wanted to ask uh, Pete Gurney, in this fascinating conversation about the procedures that have kept Sweet Sue from its beginning to the point at which it presently enjoys, uh, and all of the advertising and promotion and decisions in this, how much did you have to do? What say did you have in how your play was to be uh, promoted and kept before the public? Well, I think, uh, I have to say, not that much, and I'm glad. <laughs> not that much. I think of one of the qualities of a good producer is, is knowing when to protect the playwright and when to keep the playwright 
out of it. I think I would have been very nervous and very, uh, I don't think I would have contributed very much in many of these discussions. I, I, underneath all these decisions, I, as I think you've heard, is a kind of overriding faith in the play. And when we opened and some of the reviews weren't highly enthusiastic, the playwright normally gets very down. Uh, it, it's in, you, you take it very personally. I think this is always the case. You have to deal with your own psyche on that. So I don't think I would have been much help. And so as the advertising changed, and I suddenly saw the lovely faces now appearing and in the Times rather than the drawing, I would just say to myself, wow, I mean, that's interesting. I like that. Uh, but I, 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 I do think that the role of the playwright is to write the play, to improve the play, if he or she can, to occasionally show up and watch the play and support the cast and, and, and let, the, let the world of the play know that you're there and you're interested. But I, I'm very glad that I, I wasn't too much a part of these decisions. I simply don't know as much as these gentlemen do about how to do it. I think and Pete's being modest. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I think I have to add, too, that almost Every decision that we made, we discussed. I mean, right from the first artwork, I was very careful to show it to Pete to That's see absolutely true. Uh, whether or not he liked it, uh, whether or not it represented the play that he had written. Oh, I never, I, I hasten that, I never had the feeling anybody was running an end run around me or anything like that. That's absolutely true. I was consulted, and, um, but my feeling from the beginning was uh, do what you think best. I mean, you, you seem to know what you're doing. And, I don't, and I'll be watching the play and working on the play. So uh, I'm glad that it worked out the way it did, I, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I went in the other day because we, uh, to, just to buy a poster, Sweet Sue, that poster over there. Because we've run out of them, and I, so I was talking to the man, I, as, I, as he wrapped this poster, I said, now, uh, uh, I, I really like this poster. Uh, I said, how's it doing? He said, oh, it's, it's our, big, our big seller. He said, it used to be cats, and now it's sweet soup. <laughs> I felt very good about that, yeah. but I didn't know that before. <laughs> Getting into the dollars and cents, you talked about the advance sale. When does that start? Who started working on the advance sale, on group sales? Well, before, before we took our first ad, which is where the actual selling of tickets begins because you take your initial advertisement uh, announcement ad prior to opening the box office the following day uh, in the Sunday Times. And prior to doing that, we had contacted this small group of theater party agents who book theater parties uh, for various groups and benefits and such, and let them know that the play was happening. How much prior? Well, as soon as you know what theater you're going to, mm -hmm. you get in touch with these people and uh, give them the price scale, uh, and give them your performance schedule, and give them all the pertinent information about the production that they need to go out and sell to their groups. So prior to even opening the box office, you've got a certain amount of interest generated uh, with large groups of tickets being sold or committed for uh, prior to getting the box office open. When the box office opens, of course, uh, they start filling those orders 
as well as the individual ticket orders of people coming to the box office window or ordering through the mail or over the telephone, which has become the largest source of selling tickets. People now call with their credit cards, as you know, mm -hmm. and order their tickets over the phone. So that process started, I would say, probably uh, two months before we even opened the box office. So the group sales, the benefits, are money in the bank in advance, in yes. a sense. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Do they get a discount on their, on when they buy a group? Uh, no, they don't. Uh, in some circumstances they do, but in, in uh, our situation, uh, unless it was a group that was buying for a preview, uh, they do not get a, a discount. I know this has been asked, and so I'm going to get away with it right now. How did you how did you decide on your price of your ticket? How do you decide on how much the orchestra, how much mezzanine is? There's no longer a balcony. Is there any reason why? Well, you have a <laughs> semantics. You, you have a certain uh, calculation you do up front when you figure out how much it costs to mount the play or how much money you're going to raise, uh, you need to also figure out, because you need to tell your investors, how much money you can earn each week. And that is based on how the house is scaled, how many seats you have, what the top price is, how many seats at the top price. And you go through these calculations and you come up with a formula that you can then tell your investors that in X number of weeks, uh, at a certain capacity, uh, you will be able to return their investment. Now, you always try to paint the rosiest picture possible because that is the, uh, the, uh, the exercise is to get people to, to put their money into the play to get it on. Uh, but to answer your question, the, the scaling of the tickets is keyed to how many seats you have available and the cost of the production. The cost of the production and the personal philosophy of the producers. Do the producers want to make a certain number of tickets available at a much lower price so that they can encourage students and senior citizens and people who can't afford a $37.50 ticket uh, under normal circumstances to come and see this play as well? So a lot of it has to do with the, the personal philosophy of the producer. If you had a full house, and you had a $25 top, uh, would you not be able to make as much money as if you had a half full house and a 40 and $45 top? Yes, you would, but I think that, that unfor I hate the prices on Broadway today. When I think back only 18 years ago when we did, uh, or 17 years ago, when Larry and I did Butterflies Are Free, the top price was $9.90 on a Saturday night. Uh, and I thought that was high then. Um, our top price is what thirty thirty-seven fifty now, Saturdays on Saturday night. And uh, what goes into the cost of? I just just to answer your question. I think no. though, I don't think the public will come and fill the house at twenty-five dollars just because it's a low ticket price. Um, no, not just because it is, but because they can afford. More people then can afford to but go they to don't, the theater. But they, they don't, but they don't come to the theater. The balcony seats, I'm, I've heard Bernie and Jerry, who are the Schuberts, talk about this all the time, and they're right. The balcony seats or the mezzanine seats are always the last to sell, which are the less expensive seats. People want to sit downstairs in the orchestra 
Because uh, it, it's an occasion to go to the theater. That's now. right. You're spending that much money. It has to be an important right. occasion. You have to sit in important seats. I mean, I hate the fact for a musical that you have to spend nearly $50 a ticket. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Well, also, uh, except for a handful of shows, which are out-and-out -out runaway hits, uh, I think we have to deal with the fact that we are in a cut-rate business. Uh, there are many ways to go and see most shows uh, at something less than the full box office price. Uh, the full box office price is something that we hope to get on Saturday night when there is a, a massive audience that wants to go out on that particular night. But the rest of the week, um, there are tickets at the half price tickets booth. There are uh, all sorts of programs like TDF which provide cut rate tickets. So. We have to be aware of the fact show. that the tickets are being scaled as high as they are because a lot of them are being sold at a cut rate. That's very true. Very true. I think that, that if we did not have a tickets booth uh, with cut rate tickets uh, where you could go to get most plays on most nights at half price, you wouldn't have to scale the tickets as high as you do to make up for the discount. I'm going to now open this to questions from the audience, but I'd like you to think about one very important full question that I'd like to ask, and that is if you can give me the distribution of the breakdown of your costs, what goes into royalties, what goes into production, what goes into all along the line and percentage, not asking for that. And I will have you ask the first question. Sure. Hi, my name is Aubrey Simpson, and I'm a playwright, but my only experience with production was at La Mama, which was very controlled. What I would like to know is if you could explain in a little more detail the optioning phase of this adventure. Um, for example, how long is an option taken out and some of the legal details? Well, uh, this particular play uh, was optioned under uh, a new format which was created by the Dramatists Guild and the League of American Theaters and Producers. It was one of the first plays. It's one of the first plays to have been produced under this under that contract. new contract, which uh, has evolved, and it's called the APC, the Approved Production Contract. Which, and as a producer, I think is a very Under normal good circumstances, contract. you would option a play for six months or a year. Uh, under the circumstances of this particular play, we optioned it for a very short period of time because clearly if we did not get the play on within three months, we would not have had the availability of Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, she, when she announced her interest in doing the play on Broadway, indicated that it had to happen within a certain time frame or she would not be available. She could only give us six months and those six months had to start in October, November. And so there was no need to option the play for a whole year. But under normal circumstances, you would be optioning the play for Thank a year. You. I have asked the question and paused not for an answer. Can you give me the breakdown of the distribution of royalties, salaries, and so forth? Can you go through that very quickly before we go to our next question? How do you, how do you break down your budget? Well, you've got fixed costs, which are your... your um, salaries of your staff, your box office, your backstage people, your dressers, your wardrobe people, um, your salaried employees, the, the, your office charge, your management charge, your advertising 
costs, uh, and then you've got royalties. And the royalty people are your director, your producer, your author, uh, the stars in this particular case. Um, and you get all of these figures to a certain amount, and that's your break-even point. What uh, percentage of the budget would the royalties be? Of the weekly operating budget? Mm -hmm. uh, the royalty package, when you add up everyone's mm -hmm. percentage, comes to, I believe on this play, about 12 percent. Mm -hmm. Which is not outrageous. The, what I was going to say before, uh, when the, the young man uh, asked his question about optioning a play, this was one of the first plays to, to be uh, presented under the New Dramatist Guild Agreement, which had really not been tested much before. And uh, I just like it to be known that I think it's a very fair contract. The old contract that we were under for many years was very much unfair, I think. It, it just it didn't deal. Antiquated. It was very antiquated. It didn't deal. It was something that had been set up back in the 20s. It didn't deal with the realities of money today. This contract does. And what it provides for, Isabel, is that if you have a losing week, everybody is tied into this contract so that all of your percentage people are tied into the Dramatist Guild contract well, in their contracts important. so that it, you have your, your royalties are waived or they're minimal royalties so that you can get through periods that are maybe not as good. Uh, we had two weeks in February, I believe, when there was a, a Long Island Railroad strike and there were two major snowstorms. A lot of plays closed. We were able to get through that period of time because our costs were low enough based on this contract, I think. And because of what Fred Golden and Don Josephson and, and uh, his group did because of our advertising so that we could maintain a certain level, cost level, to get us through those periods. And that's, that's just the way uh, uh, good business is run. That's the way business is run. The way most business should be run, right? Yes. I'd like to ask Mr. Whitelaw, what kinds of questions do investors have of a producer? What, what do angels want to know about a play before they give you their money, even those that have been angelic for you before, even those that you have a history with? That's a good question. Um, it depends on the person. Most people uh, who invest, I think, in a play don't invest to make money. Most people invest because of the glamour of going to the opening night party, meeting the stars, being uh, informed every so often about how their investment is doing. Um, they can tell their friends that they're in a Broadway play or they're in a movie or a television show. I think that's nonsense. I think that business is business and an investor should invest to make money, not lose money. And that uh, um, most plays, if they're produced properly and if they're lucky like we are, can pay back their investment if, they're, if they're, the uh, budgets, uh, as Larry's been describing, have been worked out properly. Uh, my question is for Mr. Fred Golden. Um, how is your marketing different, sir, if you have no stars in your production? Oh, there's, there's quite a bit of difference. Uh, I'd like to have all my shows with uh, Lynn and, and Mary Tyler Moore. That would make it a lot easier. Uh, in the past five, well, seven or eight years, when we got into broadcast advertising, it made it easier because uh, one could be very selective as to where you buy your radio time or your TV time. If it's a kind of a play that, uh, that you think the people who watch the news, whether it's radio or TV, that's the direction in which you go. Uh, if you think it's a play that out-of-towners might like, such as our stars, 
you go into the market that's uh, within 75, 50, 75 miles of New York City, because they do come and see these shows. Uh, the one newspaper you can't afford to stay out, unfortunately, is The Times. That is a must, because uh, regardless of what numbers we all get, The Times is still the paper that uh, sells the tickets. Uh, but uh, we have gone on, on TV and have uh, indicated a phone number on the screen. And I've checked with the box office over the people who are answering those phones. And on the road in particular, I give the box office people a schedule of the times that the spot is going on. And if it should go on at 10.59, for argument's sake, at 11 o'clock, the switchboard lights up. Can we buy tickets and how much and everything else? So there is that marketing. Years ago, uh, it was how come I'm not in the Times? How come I'm not in the New York Star Ledger? How come I'm not on the radio? We can't afford that today. Things are much too expensive. Years ago, uh, a full page in the, in the Times was, uh, oh, I don't know, fourteen or $15,000. It's thirty-three, thirty-four, $35,000 today. Quite a difference. With your next question. Yes, I have a question for Mr. Uh, Gurney. Uh, my name is Daniel Kalman. Um, how, how does a, uh, uh, an unknown playwright, uh, and I'm sure you once qualified for that category yourself, <laughs> and I do right now, how, how does he or she get, get its, his foot in, in the door? I mean, how do you present material that is not well known, how does he present it to a producer? How does how it get you? there? How do you? How do you? Well, uh, it depends I mean, on this particular play. Of no, course, I was just very ago, lucky. But, were, uh, but long ago, I think, I think when you're starting out, I mean, the, the rules in some ways still apply. When you're starting out, I think you've got to write plays that are simple and easy to do. If you write huge casts and 20 scene changes, no matter how good the plot or the language is, it's unlikely that people are going to take a risk on you. So it seems to me, keep it simple, economical. I mean, those are the rules we work under in the theater today, and I think they still apply. I think what we've heard today is that we can still keep this play running because despite its, partly because of its stars, but also it's a very simple play to do. Four characters, one set. And so I, so, so, so I started uh, by writing very simple one-act plays and try to write good parts. Did you, did you send them to all producers over and over again? Did you? I, I got them done by hook or by crook and hoped that producers would show up. And I'm talking about high school auditoriums and <laughs> coffee houses. Get them done. I mean, you just... Wherever. I think that's what he said. All right, thank you very much. Very good, thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Robert O'Neill. Uh, this is for Mr. Whitelaw. I have a particular problem. I have a three-character, one-set original drama, which I just finished producing at uh, my company in Pennsylvania. I'm the managing director. And uh, it's a star vehicle play, and it's a potential Pulitzer candidate, I believe. I believe very strongly in it. And it's really nice being close to this right here. <laughs> um, what should my, uh, my next move be? Is it on now? No, I just finished an extended engagement in Philadelphia. We did a regional production at our second stage space uh, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And we moved to uh, Center City, Philly for three weeks. 
and uh, Philly did not go too well because uh, uh, we weren't able to get the same word of mouth that we got uh, in Bucks County. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, we were aware of that and we think we need to go back to the script, but uh, we feel that uh, in order to get it on in a year, year and a half or so, we need it. We need to do something with it now, and I don't know what that move should be. Well, I think what just happened with fences is a good, a good. Uh, and fences has inspired analogy because they tried to do fences. I loved it. I just saw it last week. I think it's just wonderful. Very deservedly got the Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the play had a year or a year and a half uh, on the road or in various incarnations mm -hmm. around the country. And August Wilson was allowed, because of that, to rewrite and to see and to hone his play. Uh, and I think probably it's a much better play today than it was when it first started. Larry uh, worked on uh, Ma Rainey, one of his other plays, and was very much involved at the beginning of Fences and went to see it and liked it very much. And I don't know whether you've seen it recently or not, Larry. I haven't seen it since they uh, brought it to New York. But no, the article, I did see it in Chicago. The article about how they did it in all the different places made a lot of sense to me because a play has to get better by by working on it. Are I mean, you by suggesting that's what you do then? Well, one of the people that we have in mind for the lead is George Scott mm -hmm. and uh, the author and myself and the director both agree that this is the man to do the role and uh, we'd like to send it to him. Would that be an appropriate first move to just send it to him? I would. Yeah. It's always the direct way is always the best. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. Say no. Hi, I'm Terry Kester, an independent producer. What effect is the new tax law um, going to have on investors and partnerships and the fact that it's a passive investment now? Well, that's, that's I think, uh, going to have a very big effect on the theater and on people investing in the theater. Again, I say I think it's wrong to invest for the fact that you're going to have a loss because that's, no one goes into business to lose money. You go into business to make money. Uh, so I think it's the wrong approach for an investor to say, well, you know, I'm going to do this and I can just write my money off like they used to. But, I mean, a lot of people want to be in that position and they have extra money and they want to uh, be able is to, it, is to it going take to it off their taxes. I think, yes, I think it's going to hurt the theater tremendously. Right. Thank you. Thank you. This is, I think. Hi. I'd like to ask Donna, Donna Isaacson, how does one become a casting director? Hmm. <laughs> Usually you've started someplace else, because I've never met anyone who said, oh, I want to be a casting director, and that's what I went to school for. You've either stage managed, or you've agented, or you've acted. Um, what I did is that I contacted other casting directors that I respected and asked whether or not I could come to work in their office. And one of them said yes. And I started first for no money. And then I got a full salary of, I think, $200 a week, and then I got fired. And then I got a wonderful job um, at Manhattan Theatre Club, which I stayed at for seven years. And from there, I opened my own business. But I think you have to contact the people that you want to work with and ask whether or not there's an opening and if they offer you an internship to accept that. Because in order to be a casting director, you have to have a working knowledge of the talent pool, not only in New York, but in the regional theaters and in Los Angeles. The only way to do that is with experience. So it's not something you walk right in and do. You have to learn, observe, and there are lots of people who always want people to help them. Is the money better now? 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't become a casting director to get rich, though. Become a producer. Don't become a casting director. Thank you. I think no, don't become a producer. <laughs> become a doctor. We have to end the seminars on. It's, it's always right when there is much more to be asked and much more to be said. But I think that what was just said now is one of the important things of, of what the wing does, and that is in these seminars to try and give you as much knowledge as we you possibly can absorb. <laughs> Donna said that she'd worked in all kinds of places before and she knew the art of theater. And that's what's important. And this group here today are representative of producers and press agents and general managers and everybody involved in the theater that knows theater. It's the only way that you get proper theater on and it's the only way that it will survive and the producers of Sweets are a wonderful, wonderful example and I'm delighted that they've shared their knowledge and their time with us. I'm Isabel Stevenson, President of the American Theater Wing and this is just but one of the Wing's all year round programs. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York right in the heart of Times Square. Thank you for being here. That if we did not have a tickets, but I would raise.